Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Gathering of dead people this morning. I've seen some of you at four-year-old soccer games. It's not even good soccer. I could take any one of those kids, right? And you know what you see all around the soccer field? People losing their ever-loving minds. Oh, Johnny, you're the best soccer player. He's not the best soccer player in the world. He's horrible. He wiped his nose on another kid. He's dribbling the ball the wrong direction. He doesn't know the rules. I could take him. And you're out there, not because anybody sat you down and said, here's what I want you to do. Here's how you behave at a soccer match for your grandson. You go there and you wait for him to do literally anything. Tie his shoes, stand up without falling down, fall down and cry. And then you just clap and you, you work up some type of joy and happiness, excitement, and you let it out. You know what you would tell me? Well, I didn't have to, I didn't have to work anything up. It just kind of came tumbling out because that's my daughter. That's my son. That's my grandkid. I've seen some of you carry on about a good steak. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You put that steak, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a meditarian. Okay, some kale. I've seen you carry on about kale. Oh, it's okay. I've seen, I've seen some of you lose it over a sale. You get a good deal, you're telling everybody. It is, but why is it that we come into church every single week and I have to work up a smile when we talk about Jesus? Well, that's just not my personality. Okay, then don't you dare cheer at a soccer game. Don't you dare celebrate when you eat a good steak or when you hit a sale. Well, Pastor, it's just natural for that to come out in those moments. Exactly. You were wired to worship. You were wired to let joy out of you without having to think about it. It's almost like it spontaneously comes tumbling out of you whenever something that you're passionate about, it just that spark hits. So why... Do we have to jump up and down in church and be your cheerleader and give you a thousand reasons to even just say, amen. Good job, Jesus. Glad you rose from the dead. Gave me eternal life. It doesn't do for me what a steak does. Listen, if a steak can do that for you and Jesus doesn't, there's a problem. If watching terrible four-year-old soccer gets you to cheer and clap without anybody having to tell you to do it, and Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, doesn't spark, there's a problem. Don't tell me it's not your personality because you're not being accurate. You're not being consistent with yourself because there's things in life that draw joy out of you. If Jesus doesn't, you go back to him until you find that spark. Because we don't want to be a church of dead people. You don't find Jesus among the dead. You find him among the living. Amen? All right, so now I need your help today. Well, Pastor, I know. I'm going to cheer you on. I don't need you to cheer me on. I'm not insecure about what the Word says. I know what it says. I need for you to have a spark lit in you for Jesus. No one has to cheerlead me into it. In fact, a lot of times I feel restrained. A lot of times I feel like I need to hold back. Someone said to me after the first service, Pastor, what's gotten into you the last two weeks? It's like, that's been in me for years. My first Sunday in Maryland, 10 years ago, I preached a sermon, and I was kind of preaching with that same 
gusto and personality that I have. I get excited. My default personality isn't like this. Some of you know that. I'm more on the melancholy side. I'm more reserved. I'm more. But when I, when I think about the Lord and when I feel his presence coming to me and the word comes alive to me, it tumbles out with a ferocity and an energy and an enthusiasm that I sometimes have to restrain because my first Sunday here when I let that out, I got sat down the next day. And my leaders, my elders, the people that I reported to said, you can't preach like that in Maryland. You're yelling at us the whole service. <laughs> did, did you boo? You're booing? It's Easter Sunday. Oh, you're booing? Okay. We're not going to, okay, I understand. We're not going to boo other leaders this morning on Easter Sunday. Jesus died for them too. Listen, they were, and I, it shell-shocked me. And I was like, really? And I felt, I'll be honest, I felt self-conscious. I'm like, well, man, that's my personality. And it was kind of like, you have to understand, in this culture, you're not in Atlanta anymore. And around here, if you talk like that, people think you're angry and you're yelling. And I'm like, oh, man, I've stumbled in. I stumbled into the wrong culture. So it's taken me a long time to get back to the place where I'm like, you know what? I respect and I appreciate and I hear. Respectfully, I disagree. I just, I, I disagree. That's kind of who I am. In Christ. And I don't think that's the only way to be. At the same time, it's different from my normal personality. And that to me is part of the evidence of the wonder of who Jesus is. I'm not naturally an emotive person like that. But when I feel the presence of the Lord, I can't help but let that out. I didn't make that up. I didn't go to school. I, in seminary, they don't teach you to do that. They don't be like, here's the way to work a crowd. I just found over time that there's a life and an enthusiasm I have through Jesus that I have for nothing else, even though it looks similar. So I'm not asking you to forgive me. I'm just asking you to hear me this morning. I want that enthusiasm to tumble out because I want that to spark something in you that's in there. And there is a joy. There is a thankfulness. There is a gratitude. There is a passion for the Lord that comes into us when we're saved. And I want to try and draw that out of you because I want you to be an ambassador for Jesus that looks like life not death. And if it will come out of you when you eat a good steak or delicious kale or you hit a good sale or your team wins or the team you hate loses or your, your, your four-year-old who's not even good at soccer does something basic like runs down and trips over the ball and you're telling them how great they are, I want you to understand a deeper joy than that can be unlocked through Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right, let's read Luke chapter 24. You can go to any one of the gospels and find this story. We're going to go from Luke today. Um, first sentence, but very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. I do want to pause just for a second here. It's interesting that the sentence doesn't start very early on Sunday morning. It says, but very early on Sunday morning. In other words, that's a weird word to start that sentence with if you don't read back a paragraph. So it's not in your notes, but I'm going to read back one paragraph to the end of chapter 23. And this is kind of the closing scene on what we call Good Friday, what the Jews called Passover. Verse 55 of chapter 23. As Jesus' body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. That's an important detail. Do you know there's a lot of conspiracy theories surrounding Easter? Have you watched National Geographic or Discovery over Easter or any of the last 20 years? 
Every year, I promise you this, there'll be a new theory that comes out. A new documentary, a new special with their new theory. They're all wrong. Not one of them has been proven accurate. One of the theories is called the wrong tomb theory. The theory goes like this. These women uh, got up on Easter Sunday and because on Passover it was dark and it was late and they were women, and we'll get into that later. That's not my idea, but the theory's idea. Well, because they were women and unreliable, they lost track of which tomb Jesus was buried in. So they showed up Sunday morning and they happened to pick the wrong tomb and that tomb obviously was empty and they got this crazy idea about the resurrection. Well, that's refuted even before the people who were born who made up that theory. Luke records a detail that on the Passover, the women followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. Now, why did they do that? The next verse tells us, verse 56. Then they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body because they wanted to come back before the day was over and anoint Jesus' body. But by the time they were finished concocting all those spices and ointments, Sabbath had begun, Shabbat had begun, so they rested as required by the law. Let me help you out with some of the math of Easter weekend. Because some of you think like this, well, he was in the tomb Saturday, and then Sunday they went to the grave. That's not three days. Have you ever done that math and gotten nervous? Let me, well, that's because we're looking at it through our Western United States way of looking at time. In the Jewish culture, the day ended at sundown. So until sundown, it was Friday. The body of Jesus had to be in the tomb before sundown while it was still Friday because at sundown on Friday began Shabbat. And it was completely forbidden in the law to touch or handle a corpse on Shabbat. Now, as best we can tell, Jesus died somewhere between 4 and 4.30 p.m. Sundown at that time of year would have been 6 p.m. So do you know how little time they had to do the following? Get a corpse off the cross, properly prepare it for burial, carry it to a tomb, anoint it with all the spices and oils that they needed to, and then get out of there before sundown. They didn't have much time. They had probably about 90 minutes. That's not much time. And I realize you're probably not interested on Easter Sunday morning about a lesson in ancient mortuary practices. But it's valuable for a couple reasons. We do need to understand the, the Jewish population prepared bodies differently than we did. And they tracked time a little different. So Jesus' dead body was in the tomb for a few moments on Friday. That counted for day one. At sunset, Shabbat, Saturday, day two. At sunset on Shabbat began Sunday, day Three And very early on Sunday, the women went to the tomb. So his body was there by their calendar three days. What was the body doing in there? Well, it began to decompose. And we read um, how hasty it had to happen because the women recognized Joseph of Arimathea did a good job, but he didn't do the full, he didn't do everything he was supposed to do. And so they hurried home on, on Friday and they were trying to get the, the, the spices and the ointments together so that they could bring it back and apply it to Jesus' body, but they ran out of time. You see, when Jews prepared the body, the first thing they did was take strips of linen and they would wrap each limb individually. The left leg, the right leg, the right arm, the left arm. Right arm, left, it doesn't, I said right, left, and I did it backwards, but that's okay. We'll fix that in editing. It, we don't edit, it's live stream. Anyway, they wrapped each limb by itself first in linen. And then if you think of a, like if you think of a mummy, then they would like get the body pulled tight together, and then they'd wrap it again. 
starting at the feet and going the whole way up until the body was covered the whole way across this way, all right? Then they would uh, combine these spices and ointments together. We already know that they had put about 100 pounds of spices and ointments on him already. There was more to come. And what they do, when they mix it together, it becomes gelatinous. It's jelly-like, and they would smear it or paste it onto all that linen. That jelly, when it would sit in that linen, would gradually harden into something like a rubber cement. It would get very, very, very hard and encased, like harder than plaster. And so... um, We understand that Joseph of Arimathea probably did the initial application, but they couldn't do it completely, and they ran out of time, and the women couldn't break their own law by going to finish the job. And so they waited from the end of the day on Good Friday until the early morning. Greek tells us fourth watch of the night. Somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. they get up. Now we're back into Luke 24. Very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Which women? We know a couple. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Isn't that special, right? His mom. Mary of Magdala or Mary Magdalene. Do you know anything about her backstory? She wasn't a, her history's not a good one. In fact, we get a detail. One, one of the gospel writers says, Mary of Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. Now, I don't know what her backstory was. You can do the study on the city of Magdala and what they were known for and put two and two together and either get three and a half, four, or six. I'm not sure which one. It doesn't really matter. The Gospels don't bring it up. You know why? Jesus has a short memory about that thing. We don't need to know the details. We don't need to know. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't want to remind you of the details of your past? I have good news for you. If you get nothing else, understand this. Easter Sunday means you will never, ever, 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 ever Ever, 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 ever stand before the judge for your sins ever again. It's not like he has this long list he's been accruing, and then before you get into heaven, you're going to have to march in front of there, and God's going to have to be all right. Phil, let's, uh, let's open up volume one. Listen, covered, paid off. I will never, ever, ever, nor will you. You put your faith in Jesus, you repent, you receive salvation, you'll never stand count. We don't know exactly what her past was. We know she has one, but the Bible tells us the details just aren't important. All we know is that seven demons had come out of her. She lived a bad life, but look at how much she loves Jesus. She's doing totally illogical things. Love makes you do illogical things at times. There's times that you, you know, I, you know, sometimes, you know, I love my wife more than any other human on the face of the earth. She is easy for me to love. And I, I can't think of any immediate examples, but I know what I've said several times when I'll see her overcome or overwhelmed or frustrated. And I'll just say, listen, 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 listen. I got it. I'll handle it. Don't you worry about it. I'll handle it. And I walk away and I'm thinking, I have no idea how to handle what I just committed to. I don't have a plan. I don't have the resources. I don't have the know-how. Maybe YouTube can help, but I'm not sure. All I know is that love at times, you're not thinking about the logistics first. You're not thinking about the details. You're not thinking if you have the means to do it. You just see a need, and out of love, before you know it, you just say, I'll handle it. You have at least four because you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary of Magdala, Joanna, and some other women who are going to the tomb. And if you read all the gospel accounts, Luke doesn't bring this out, but some of the other gospel writers do. They were having a conversation on the way to the tomb like, what are we going to do about the stone? They hadn't thought about that. They were just on their way. Uh, Well, what are we going to do about the armed guards? What are we going to 
They had no plan. You know why they went? Love. Love. We need to do this for Jesus. And sometimes love just makes you do illogical things where you're not thinking through the details. That's the depth of love these women had for Jesus. But aren't you glad that in verse 2, God had already dealt with some of the logistical challenges before they got there? They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Now let me ask you a question. Why did they take spices with them? To put on what? What kind of body? A corpse. Do you know what they were expecting to find? A corpse. Pastor, why are you saying this? You need to see none of these women believed that Jesus was going to be risen from the dead. In fact, nobody in this story was predisposed to believe that Jesus would actually do what he prophesied. They all assumed he was dead, and when they went to the tomb, they would find a dead Jesus. They weren't in tune with the Jesus as he said he was, they expected to find Jesus as they thought he would be. And they were shocked. I want you to see this because there's another theory called the wishful thinking theory. And that theory says these women and the disciples were so fixated on this idea that Jesus had to be raised from the dead. They were suffering from PTSD, which is valid but they were so hyped up that they actually, their minds and its weakened state conjured up a hallucination. And because of their wishful thinking, they saw a hallucination that didn't pan out to be accurate. Now let me ask you a question. Do these women impress you as people who think they're going to the tomb to find a risen savior? No. These are women who are convinced They're going to put spices on a dead body. And you'll see in a few verses, the disciples even more skeptical. So they found the stone has been rolled away from the entrance. They went in, but what did they not find? They didn't find the body of Jesus. Verse 4, as they stood there, what's the next word? Puzzled. Now, put yourself in their shoes or bare feet for a second. What would have puzzled them? A couple things. What do you think would have puzzled them? Where's the body? What else? How did the stone get rolled away? Where are the guards? (laughs) And then who are these two dudes? If you read, now Luke doesn't bring this out. If you read the other accounts, they fill in parts that Luke doesn't emphasize. The other accounts say that they came to a quick conclusion over what must have happened. Their first thought was what? Do you know? Somebody must have stolen the body. And you're thinking, that's wild. Really? No. Do you know how common it was in ancient days? Yeah, it's okay. I was going to say my history teacher can back me up on this, right? Grave robbing, tomb raiding, you know, Laura Croft, right? All these folks. Tomb raiders, grave, super common, So much so that Caesar made a law that he's trying to stop people from breaking into tombs and plundering the remains and all the stuff that's inside of them. He actually made a law that anybody who gets caught breaking into tombs, that's now a capital offense punishable by execution. It's very common. And the lady's assumption is somebody must have stolen the body. And if you read the other gospel accounts, they're grief-stricken, they start crying, and then these two... Now, what does Luke say? They're two men. John says they were two angels. Well, who's right? Both. 
John wrote his gospel the last chronologically, and by that time probably had a good enough understanding. He tells us they were angels. But everybody else who was there said, well, they looked like men, but they were wearing dazzling robes. What you have here is an opportunity where, an occasion where God revealed angels in human form, and they had human qualities. They looked like men, but they were clothed in dazzling robes. 34 books of the Bible talk about angels, 17 in the Old Testament, 17 in the New Testament. Usually they come as messengers. There's other characteristics that we see. But it's interesting, if you read the other gospel accounts, it says that those two men, the two angels wearing dazzling clothes, were inside this tomb, and they were seated. And it even gives us the detail of where they were seated. Do you remember, if you've read some of the other accounts, one where Jesus' head would have been, and the other where his feet would have been. Now, I'm going to slow down here for a second because this is pretty cool. I have had opportunity in my life to travel to Israel and to, to go through the city of Jerusalem. There are exactly two discovered tombs. And trust me, they have excavated like every millimeter of Jerusalem. There are exactly two tombs within almost equidistant from Golgotha, which fit the criteria of the Bible. And they're specific. These are not natural caves. They were man-made caves. So you think about the expense it would take in that day and age to use tools to make a cave out of stone. A lot of work. There's only two. There's actually three man-made caves they've discovered. One of them is so tiny a human being couldn't get into it. There's two others that are laid out in a way that the Bible talks about where it's a man-made cave, but inside the cave there's actually several sections or compartments where one or more bodies could have been laid and where there was place for others to, to stand, all the different details here. One of those tombs is now where they've built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, I've not been in that one yet. I have been to the tomb they call the garden tomb. And I'm a, of the two, I'm the garden tomb guy, but I would really get into nerdery here, and I don't know that you want to hear all that. But I've been to that tomb. I've walked into that tomb. You too can walk into that tomb. And it's laid out exactly the way the Bible describes. And there is this one part that's been hewn into the ground where you could see a body could be laid, and there's stone on the other side where What the lady saw was an angel on this side and an angel on this side. And think about what have probably been on the the stone there where Jesus' bloody and battered body had laid. There's probably some, some blood there. Now, if you're a student of the Old Testament, if you came from the, the Jewish tradition, that would immediately remind you of something. Do you remember how the Ark of the Covenant was constructed? On top of it, they had something called what? the mercy seat, and you know how it was designed? A cherubim on one side, a cherubim on the other side, and the high priest would bring in blood and drizzle it right in the middle of it, and that's where the Lord would atone for the sins of Israel. And here they walk in and they see this picture of atonement, the ultimate atonement, angels on either side and where his body was laid. And the women are, how do they respond? They're terrified, and they bowed with their faces to the ground. Verse 6. Then the men asked. There's a certain type of sensitivity that men should have. There are, as I've learned, and I could probably give you more, there's just some things you shouldn't say to a woman at any time, and then there's just 
a sense of timing you should have about when you ask women certain questions. I can't teach on that um, because I'm still learning. Um, If you read the other Gospels, there's a question they asked before the one that we're going to read here. They ask a group of women who are weeping at the graveside of someone they love. They say, "Uh, ladies, why are you crying? Let me put this into context. You go to the cemetery today and you see a woman kneeling beside the tombstone of someone she loved very dearly, perhaps her husband. She's bringing flowers and she's having a moment crying. And could you imagine how totally self-unaware someone would have to be to walk up to her and be like, ma'am, why are you crying like that? What is your problem? Doesn't that make you just cringe just thinking about that? And yet, we can understand as humans some of the emotions they were going through. I don't know why it is until you live through it that the graveside becomes just a very poignant, special place for us as humans. It's the last, usually, connection we have to someone that we love that's passed away. And the angels who are waiting there see the women's condition. The first question they ask is, why are you crying? And are they being insensitive? No, they're trying to shock them out of their emotion for a second and get them to think about their reactions. They ask them, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be, be, must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day? So much good stuff here. First of all, he's asking for a second, how did you even get in here? Why are you even in this room? And they're thinking, well, the stone was rolled away. And it's drawing our attention to something. No one in the Bible was there the moment Jesus resurrected from the dead. We have no firsthand account of what the resurrection actually looked like. Were there strobe lights? Was there an earthquake? Was there music? Was there, we don't know, none of us were there. All we have are the discoveries of the resurrection. All we know is that Jesus came back from the dead and had a brand new body with enhanced characteristics and enhanced powers. You get a sneak peek of them in John 20, 19. Happens a little bit after this. A few days later, the disciples, these brave, bold 11, were hiding out in a room, and the Bible includes a detail, with all the doors and the windows locked. Now, let me ask you another question here. Does this seem like a brave group of men? Do they seem courageous to you here? Does this seem like the group of men who say, you know what? Let's go overpower the Roman guards in front of the tomb. Let's roll that three-ton stone up out of the channel that it's been deposited in. Let's roll that thing up and let's steal the Lord's body. Does this seem like a group of men inclined to do that? And yet that's one of the theories, that the disciples stole the body. This is not a group of men. They're hiding out of a room with the doors and windows locked, and Jesus shows up to talk to them, and how does he get in the room? Do you remember? He appears, it says. He didn't come through the door. He didn't come through the window. Somehow, this new resurrection body that he has can pass through matter. Ha <laughs> ha. Do you know what your body's going to be like in heaven? It's going to be like his body. The games of hide and seek are going to take on a whole new level. We're going to have fun. 
Now let me ask you a question. Knowing that his body can do that, did he need the stone rolled away to get out? He didn't need the stone rolled away. He could have left that stone on there and just appeared. The stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let people come in and believe. You see, the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. He didn't need that. It was rolled away so that skeptical, unbelieving, conspiracy theory-laden humans could actually walk inside and take in all the evidence and see there's not a body here anymore. Oh, but there was some evidence behind you. Any of you know what, the, what else besides the angels was in there? His grave clothes, the linens, and how were they left in the room? Were they scattered about? They were folded up neatly. How do you do that to cement hardened linen? Right? There's a little detail that I'll save for next Easter that it even says the head cloth that was around his head was folded up neatly and placed in a specific place. There's a reason the Jews would have known that he did, why he did that. But that's... Mind, they see all this stuff there. They have to go in. But here's what I want you to see. You have to see this. They see all the evidence. They see a stone rolled away. They see an empty tomb. They're talking to angels. The angels are saying, you don't find Jesus among dead things, which we already talked about this morning. Jesus, you don't look for Jesus among the dead. You don't find him in dead things. You don't find him in dead religion, dead rituals, dead churches. You don't find him there. You only find Jesus where there's resurrection life. That's where you find Jesus. And so his church ought not be a collection of dead people. We ought not be people that sit around. Oh, yeah, that's okay. You can clap for that. We ought not be a place where you come to on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or a Thursday night and walk around with people that are happy and joking in the foyer and then we come inside and I'm here. They're singing that song again. It doesn't do it for me. Here comes the pastor. Oh, he's got pink on today. No vest. Wow, revival, you know, like. It's getting to be about that time. Hopefully I can make it through. Well, let's check. Let's pretend I'm looking at my Bible, but let's really get on Instagram and see what's going on here. And, you know, let's register for events at the church at 1117. And then the pastor will see what time I registered. And no, I wasn't paying attention to the message, but I'm always asking us to amen. I don't believe in that. I don't, you know, I don't believe. Really? You don't look. And then we want people from the community to come in on a Sunday morning and find out what Jesus is all about. I don't want them to be like that. Yeah, I will, and I am. Thank you. You can come every week and sit in front and bring all your friends. Listen, I, we're not supposed to be like that. Well, I need to work myself up to it. You don't work yourself into that. Jesus works himself out of you that way. You don't have to, if you have to work yourself up, you don't know Jesus like I do. Well, it's just not my person. Person Their personality has something to do with it. But it, what kind of personality says, oh, I, am, I just love this. You know, what kind of marriage would you have? You know, I love you with all my heart. You're the best thing ever. I know you want me to say this. It's not my personality to tell you I love you. Um, you know, I know you're my wife, but, you know, I, you know, I, what kind of relationship is that? Well, I want, you know, this, this, this lost and sinful world. They just don't have what I have. Good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Don't wear the T-shirt. Don't put that bumper sticker on your car. We don't need that kind of PR. we got enough people out there doing crazy immoral things in the name of Jesus. We don't need that kind of silliness. You don't look for Jesus among the dead. You find him where there's resurrection life. Resurrection life. That's different from just finding him where there's life. You can go, in a, you can go to a concert today. 
and find life. You can, go to, you can go to spring break and see all kinds of life. It's not resurrection life. Resurrection life is the kind of life that comes out for people who knew that I was dead and now I've gotten my life back and a better life than I ever gave up. That's where you find it. And if you've lost that, you know what? Be reminded. Sometimes you need to be reminded of where you've come from. You need to say, you know what? Uh, these grave clothes I used to wear, those they don't fit me anymore. That's who I used to be. That's not who I am. And every now and then, it's not like we need to go back and feel the shame of all of it all over again. But sometimes we need to be able to say, if I'm finding, if I can't find enough gratitude, let me just step back and see what he's brought me out of, what he's changed me from. The fact that he tore all of that old, confining, sinful life off of me and has given giving me a new life. The stone was not rolled away to let him out. It was so you and I could look in. And we understand the angel said, you don't find Jesus among dead things. There's nothing more to see here. He's the evidence. Go out. He's out there. That's where resurrection life really takes place. So we see all these things here. And yet, and yet, here's the women. They get the full sermon from the angels. They see the linen. They see the empty grave spot. They see the stone rolled away. They find no trace of the guards. They see two angels. That's kind of cool, the different times that angels came and talked to people about Jesus. There's some common threads. You know, angel, first angel that talked to someone about Jesus talked to Mary, right? This little teenage virgin girl from a very poor family, totally inconsequential, and yet God comes to the inconsequential person and tells her the good news. You have the shepherds, right? Shepherds get the, when Jesus is born, the angels don't go to the governor. They don't go to the king. They don't go to the politicians or the philosophers. They, they, they go to the shepherds who no one thinks are trustworthy. And they go to the shepherds, these inconsequential people, and give them the good news. And the shepherds go about town, and it says the people were astounded by the stories the shepherd told. That's the first time anybody cared what a shepherd had to say. And now when Jesus is raised from the dead, they don't go to Pilate. That would have been cool. Don't go to Herod. That would have been better. Don't even single out Peter first. They show up to women who in that day's testament, women's testimony was so unreliable the Jews wouldn't allow it to be admitted in court. Not my rule, the Old Testament. Well, please don't email me about it. I didn't make that up. And yet the evidence by itself didn't change them. You can walk through every tomb in Israel with a guide who tells you everything. And unless you couple what you see with the words of Jesus, it'll just be history to you. What really changed their heart was when the angel says, listen, you see it all. And they're like, yes, we see it. And he must have been stolen. The angel says, wait, 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 wait. You're missing something. Don't you remember he predicted this Don't you remember not so long ago, he said, the son of man, verse seven, must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. That happened. And be crucified. He was very specific about how he was gonna die. He told you the manner in which he would die and that he would rise again on the third day. Don't you remember? And now between verse seven and eight, something supernatural happens. They take the evidence but then they couple it with Jesus' words. And now belief sinks into their heart. It wasn't just that they saw a bunch of evidence laying around. They had to actually let it sit. 
Here is the only man in history who has ever done this. He predicted in advance the who, the what, the where, the why, the when, and the how of his own death and predicted that three days later he would rise from that, not be resuscitated, but be resurrected. And he actually pulls it off. And the angel says, don't you remember he told you this? And now they're thinking, oh, yeah. He did, he did say that he would be betrayed, and that happened. He did say that sinful men would kill him, and that happened. And they, it would happen not by execution or by beating or by drowning or by, you know, I don't want to get real creative with all the different possible ways someone could die. But he said crucifixion, which at the time would have sounded crazy because Jews don't crucify. You know, you, you know what I mean? Jews don't cruci- crucify people. Romans do. He also said he'd rise on the third day, and it, it's the third day. Something clicks, and look at verse 8. They don't ask for any more questions. They don't ask for any more evidence. Then they remembered that he had said this, and they rushed from the tomb to tell. Do you see where belief takes root in their heart? They're like, we don't need to camp out in here anymore. We need to go tell everybody, he's alive. He did it. He actually did it. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary of Magdalene. It was Joanna. It was Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. We keep reading verse 11. And when the disciples heard it, they rejoiced and they founded the church and they had a big party and they told it. That's not what they did. Here's what the men said when the women told them what they saw. The story sounded like nonsense to the men. So they didn't believe it. Let me ask you again. Are these men who are on the precipice of belief and just need a little nudge to come over to the other side? These men in every way, shape, and form are utterly skeptical. I'm by nature an extremely skeptical person. Not proud of that. One thing I'm especially skeptical about is everybody who tells me their angel sighting stories. Pastor, that's very sacrilegious and disappointing. I understand. It it is. Um, But if I had a nickel for everybody who had a conversation with an angel, I would have a lot of nickels. I, uh, you know, Pastor, I was just driving to church, and I was discouraged, and I looked up in the clouds, and the clouds spelled out the entire third chapter of John in Greek letters, and then an angel sat in my car and read it to me, and I'm just so encouraged, and I'm listening. I'm like, wow, that is amazing. I'm walking around like, you're crazy. That didn't happen. You had pizza last night or something. I... I'm, I'm naturally skeptical of those types of things. Here's the big problem with being skeptical. What if they really did see an angel? New Testament tells us, be aware because many of us are entertaining angels unaware. If you're a skeptical person and you've had a hard time wrestling through what God's all about, what Jesus is all about. Understand, so were they. Totally skeptical. Totally skeptical. So there's 11 disciples at this point, and you're like, 11? Yeah, that's important. They were down one from a few days earlier. Um, Little incident with Judas we can talk about next year. It's not a real happy topic for today. We'll leave that for another day. However, verse 12 is really cool. Now, here's where Luke and John both tell the same story, but John adds some extra detail, which is totally hilarious to me. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Now, hold that thought. John adds a little extra detail. He says Peter wasn't the only one who went there. Now, 
Who wrote, this is a tough question, okay, so some of my advanced believers, I need your help here. Who wrote the Gospel of John? John, yes. Um, do you know which Gospel the Apostle John is described as the one who Jesus loved? John described himself. There's the other 11, and then there's the one who Jesus loved. Do you know in John's gospel, he tells us that Peter isn't the only one who went to the tomb? Who else went? John. And do you know what John says? Two apostles raced to the tomb, and John outran Peter. (laughs) Why? He wants all of history to know I'm faster than he is. The Easter Sunday 5K winner, gold medal. Luke says, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. And I love this, stooping down. Well, you got to humble yourself if you're going to understand this story. you got to admit some things about yourself. You only can see the truth of Easter if you're willing to stoop down a little bit. And say, you know what, I need to be saved. I don't have it all together. Maybe I don't know all the answers. Maybe this deserves a second look or a 2,000th look. He peered in, and you know what he sees? He sees the empty linen wrappings. Now, that's interesting. There's some other theories. One theory is that a wild animal came in and ate Jesus' body, and that's why they couldn't find it. Let me ask you a question. If a wild animal, first of all, the type of wild animal that can move a three-ton stone, got in there, how would you find the linens? They would not be folded. They lack the opposable thumbs, right? Like they couldn't, whatever animal that, I mean, maybe they did. An animal is not going to like devour the, I know this is really like not great mental imagery you have, too late, right? But understand, like an animal would not wrap up the linens, right? There's another theory that it was grave robbers. Well, what burglar do you know, first of all, that's going to say, you know what? We will, let's, Let's unwrap the body here and let's line everything. They're not going to be, a burglar's not going to go into your house and ransack and be like, oh, wait, we can't leave this place looking like this. Oh, well, my goodness, we're going to, let's, oh, how rude of us. Let's sweep up before we leave. Doesn't make any sense. No wild animal would have done that. Now, there's a resuscitation and a swoon theory. Have you heard of this? The swoon theory says Jesus appeared to die on the cross, but he didn't actually, he wasn't actually clinically dead. Now, I'm a student of the Bible, not a student of the medicine, so my explanation may be not as detailed as some detail could provide you. We could talk about the separation of blood and water and things like that, but, but you know, follow with me for just a moment. Here's what that theory says, and I, I realize as I explain the theory, it's going to sound like I'm poking fun at the intellectuals who came up with these theories. I don't mean to poke fun at. I don't mean to make fun. What I do want to do, though, is have you for a second, in the name of science, could you just consider the believability of this theory for a second and tell me if it sounds scientifically reasonable? Here's what they're suggesting. The theory goes like this. Jesus didn't, in fact, die on the cross, but he looked dead to all, for all intents and purposes. He had suffered a beating, broken bones, stabbing, lost a lot of water, a lot of blood. He went into a deep coma. And then he was prepared for burial. Like I told you, limbs wrapped tight with linen individually, limbs wrapped to the body together like a mummy, 100 pounds of spices put on his body. He was left inside of a tomb with the stone rolled in front of it. And then the theory goes like this. The damp air combined with the aroma of the spices revived and resuscitated him. You understand the difference between resuscitation and resurrection? Resuscitation means never died, but was in a death-like state and came back. CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. 
Resurrection means clinically dead, totally dead, gone, brought back to life, okay? If Jesus resuscitated, it means he never died. That's a big deal to us. We can't just say, well, no matter what happened, no, it has to be resurrection, not resuscitation. So the theory goes like this. He was revived. And in spite of the fact that he had internal bleeding, broken bones, he was wrapped in 100 pounds of spices. Not only was he revived, but he had the human strength to break out of the linen, fold it all up, by himself move a three-ton stone and then attack an entire armed guard in his resuscitated state. Does that sound scientifically believable to you? Is that when you think, man, my uncle was in a coma yesterday and today he moved a three-ton stone and fought off 12 security guards? No. I'm just saying, if we're going to talk science, science that for me. Science that for me. You know what's easier for me to believe? That God did it. It's going to take more faith for me to believe he resuscitated than he resurrected. That makes more sense to me. So he peers in, he sees the empty linen wrappings, and he went home again wondering. So so here's the deal with Peter. He's like, whoa, yeah, this man, something happened here. And the teacher is like, Peter, do you know what happened? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have no idea. And he's wondering. Now John, good old John, humble John, adds some detail. In John's account, he says, John and Peter saw it. John believed. Peter went home wondering. Just want all of history to know I'm the one Jesus loved. I'm faster and I believed first. Well, why doesn't Luke say it? Well, Luke's probably being very sensitive to the reputation of Peter among the early church, and not wanting to include that detail because there's no real way to make that look good on him. But it's valid because when Jesus does finally show up to talk to Peter, what's Peter doing? He's fishing, not witnessing, not evangelizing. He's doubting, and it's, uh, I wish I had time. What you do see, though, in all these moments where the resurrected Jesus reveals himself to people he previously knew, he didn't, re- he didn't reveal himself so much visually as he did verbally. You know, there was people who saw him and didn't recognize him. People who were looking for him and talking to him, and they didn't know who he was. The Bible says he, was, you know, he withheld their ability to recognize him visually. But you know what usually broke the ice? His voice. When did, what did he say to get Mary to believe? You know what he said? Mary. And she says, Rabboni. It was his voice. With Peter, what was it? He recognized the voice. Like, I'm out here, I'm fishing. I don't recognize the dude, but that, that voice sounds familiar. They, I remember the first time he met me, I was fishing, and, it, and he finally figures it out. If you read through the story, it's his voice. You might not be able to see Jesus like they saw Jesus, but you can hear his voice. And when you hear the voice of Jesus speak to your soul, something happens in that moment that nothing else can do. He went home. He wondered what had happened. So let me give you a couple quick takeaways because we're out of time. I could talk about this literally all day. There's so much in here, so many things we, we left. Um, 
Nobody expected to find an empty tomb, not the women, not the apostles. It actually proves the resurrection because the original followers of Jesus were not predisposed to believe his resurrection. In fact, in that day and time, women, their testimony wasn't admissible in court. It just shows Luke's not making this up. If you're trying to fabricate this story, you'd never say that Jesus decided to reveal himself to the least believable people in that day. You would never write a story like that. It just shows how true it is because you would never do it that way. No one would have believed it. He lists all their names. Well, why? So you could fact check them. Luke wrote this while those ladies were still alive. People are starting to read it. Well, I don't know if Luke's telling the truth. Well, go ask Mary. Go ask Joanna. Go ask the other Mary. Go ask any of the Marys, any of the women. Go ask them. I'll put their names in the book. You go ask them. No one would do that if they're making a story up. They wouldn't give you their bibliography and their sources and tell you, go talk to them. They're alive. If I'm lying, they'll tell you. Go talk to all of them. Peter and John both observed what was in the tomb, and John believed. Peter analyzed the situation. He knew something spectacular had happened, but he had forgotten. John 29 says the reason Peter didn't believe is he had forgotten the words of Jesus. He's just looking at evidence without looking at the words of Jesus. I can talk to you about evidence all day, but I want you to hear the voice of Jesus. Here's the three takeaways. When the stone was rolled away, it reveals to anyone who looks inside three things real quick. Number one, the cross was the ransom payment and the resurrection was the receipt. Do you know what a receipt is? Have you heard of these things? I went to buy something for the boys the other day uh, of a clothing variety without my wife, which is always a risk. And after 37 text messages exchanged, um, I finally, you know, we finally agreed, I'm going to buy it, but please bring home the receipt. And I went up to check out, and because, you know, I'm at one of these establishments where they always want to ask me, are you using your this card today? No, I am not. Um, would you like to save 10%? Always, but, but no thank you today. Um, and at the very end, the screen had all these options for how I wanted my receipt. More options than a stake is for your receipt now. Do you want to print it? Do you want to email it? Do you want to both print and email or other? I was like, you know what? I'm going to treat myself to a printed receipt today. I hit that thing and prints right out. Why do you need a receipt when you go shopping? There's usually two reasons. When you go shopping for clothes, why are you getting the receipt? And so you can return it. You can take it back when you get it home and it either doesn't fit the boys or they just refuse to wear it even though it does fit, which is 50-50 for me at best. There's another reason why you need the receipt. And maybe you've never had this experience, but you, do you ever get nervous when you're pushing a cart or carrying a bag of things out the exit door and they have these two like orbs sticking up out of the ground? Have you ever, unintentionally of course in this house, carried something through there that triggered? Have you experienced in some of these stores the overkill of this? It's like strobe lights, flashing blue lights that they've recycled from Kmart. There's like, like the, the, the spikes start coming down from the ceiling out of the ground. A moat opens up with alligators in it and somebody, you know, in a polo shirt armed with a flashlight like comes over to you and you're like terrified. Like for me, you know the first thing I'm digging for? The receipt. Because they want to say, you're carrying something out of here that you have no right. You didn't pay for that. And I'm like, yes, I did. I paid for all these AAA batteries. I had no idea, you know, that they would set this off. But here's the, the receipt is a proof of payment. The pastor, what does that have to do with me and Easter? Here's what it has to do with you and me. We all owe God. 
all of us. Every time we sin, that means to disobey God. Every time we sin, a debt to God is created. There's a consequence. There's a punishment for sin. And every sin has the same debt. It is in order for that sin to be paid off in full and to to redeem the relationship, to restore the relationship, it costs one life. Every sin. Well, pastor, no problem. I'll pay it off myself. Okay, let's go into your wallet of available lives. How often have you sinned? Oh, I'm pretty holy, maybe once a week for the last 30 years. Okay, let me do the quick math. 12 bajillion sins. Not a real number. How many lives do you have available? Well, one. Well, I believe in reincarnation. Okay, what, a dozen? Here's the point. If you want to pay your debt to God, you can't. You don't have enough lives. You only have one. So you have a choice. You're going to stand. Everybody will stand before the throne of God. And you have a choice in that moment. You can either get the wages you deserve for the way you lived, or you can get a gift. Those are your choices. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wage that sin pays out. Now, you like to talk about wages. You wait till the next time your paycheck is short by eight hours. Yeah, I will. I'm about to. How quick are you going to be down at HR? Well, I, this is my, I am short by eight hours. You give me what I deserve. I work those hours. Those are my wages. I want what I deserve. Awesome. You can go to God and you can get your wage. I'll even tell you what it is. The wage you and I deserve is death. I don't like those wages. Tough. That's the wage. Death. There's another option. It's not a wage because you can't earn it. And you don't deserve it. It's a gift. Gift is unearned, undeserved. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. Well, how can I trust that that is really rightfully something I can access? Well, your debt is, you're going to have to prove your debt's paid off because the enemy is going to convince you that it is unpaid and that it can never be paid off. There's two things that have to be paid off, that the debt of sin and the, and the control of death. Those are the two things. Because those are the things we can't fix. We can't get rid of our sin. And even though Elon Musk will probably try really hard, you can't defeat death. So it requires somebody to be able to go into their wallet and make a payment that you and I don't have in our wallet. Adam couldn't do it. Israel didn't do it. No human could do it. Someone outside the world came into the world with that assignment. That was Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless life. He died a death. And the cross was where the payment was made. That's where he took out of his wallet not just a human life, but a sinless human life. And applied his blood, and essentially he swiped the payment at the cross. And then we wait. Have you ever been at one of those little machines after you've swiped or, Dave Ramsey, people don't do this, but the rest of us, you swiped or inserted the card, and you're, yeah, the debit card, the debit card. 
I want to talk to Dave Ramsey about points one day, but we'll get there later on. Um, and he, he'd win. Uh, but you're waiting there, and it's taken a long time for the approval to come, and you're getting a little embarrassed and nervous. This is essentially what the world was waiting for between the tomb being closed and the discovery of the resurrected body. We're saying the payment has been swiped, but is it accepted? Because God, if he's looking over Jesus' life and there was any sin in his life, the payment wouldn't have been accepted. If God was unwilling to apply that payment, not just to Jesus, because Jesus didn't need it applied, If God was willing to apply that payment to all of us, we had to wait and see if the transaction was approved. And I want you to understand that the payment was made at the cross, but the resurrection is the proof that the payment was accepted. Because we, what does need to be on the receipt? Has to be sin is paid off and death is defeated. When Jesus came back, he showed us death has been defeated because up to this point, nobody's done this. Now Jesus says death is no longer the most powerful thing. I'm more powerful than death. And the control that sin has over our life has been satisfied through Jesus' work. So the next time your conscience or your friend or the enemy says, you know what? You're still messed up. Jesus doesn't love you. You couldn't possibly be saved. He has nothing to do with you. You're just that same old rotten person. You pull out the receipt. You pull out the receipt and you say, you know what? Nope. I'm not carrying those things anymore. That's been paid for by Jesus. My past has been covered. My sins have been covered. My hope and my future, it's all in the receipt. It's all been paid for. Second thing, it also shows us that death no longer has the final say on those who Jesus redeems. Up to this point, when you died, that was it. And if Jesus didn't get raised from the dead... If he wasn't brought back to life, you and I have no reason to believe that our life will continue after this life ends. Death would have the final say. But the beautiful thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is that, is that uh, it's so beautiful that it just slipped, slipped, my, <laughs> slipped my mind right there for a second. The, the beautiful thing that he says is that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. Not that he's the final fruit, just the first. Jesus says, if you follow me, I'll lift you up. Just like I was raised from the dead, you can be raised from the dead. The the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and will quicken your old mortal body. I want you to know that the resurrection tells us that you and I have a future with Jesus in heaven. It's going to be brand new there. You're going to get a brand new body, praise his name. It's going to be perfect. Peak development, enhanced powers, All these other kinds of things. We only know a little bit about it, but it's going to be really, really, really fun. Why? Because Jesus said that death is defeated. It's lost its sting, and only because he did it, and it's printed on our receipt. Number three, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we, too, can be and will be raised from the dead. Praise his name. Praise his name. You don't have to walk around being terrified about death. I'm not saying you need to look forward to it, but you don't have to be terrified. And the moment that you understand, I don't need to fear death, you can really live. You can really live. You don't have to collect stuff. I collect some things. But I mean, you you can't take it with you anyway. Can't take it with you. The moment you realize that this is just the dress rehearsal for eternity, you can be content whether you get a lot or a little or somewhere in between. 
Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we too can be raised from the dead. And when you know you're going to be raised from the dead, you stop walking around behaving like a dead person when we talk about Jesus. There's a joy. There's a hope. There's a thrill. If you believe Jesus was raised from the dead, tell your face it will get along with that idea. Seriously. It's good news. It's the best news. It's great news. Let's pray. Let's go to him this morning. Worship team, will you come? I have two invitations this morning. First, to those who are outside of God's kingdom. The second, to those who are followers of Jesus. Here's what I want to ask you. If you're outside of God's kingdom, would you like to come into Jesus' kingdom today? Would you like to be forgiven of sin? Would you like to have joy unspeakable? Would you like to have a new hope, a new purpose, a new identity that is durable? Would you like to have clean relationship with God your Father? Would you like to experience all the wonder and the power of having God make you a new creature, washing your past away and sending his spirit to live inside of you? If the answer to that is yes, you're probably thinking, what do I need to do? Simple, repent and believe. That's it. That's all you have to do. Repent and believe. Repent means to turn from in order to turn to. You have to turn from living your life the way you think you ought to live it. You have, to, you have to turn from that. You have to turn from being your own decision maker about what's right and what's wrong and what you should and you shouldn't do. You have to turn from that and turn to surrender to God's way. That's what repent means. It means to change your mind about choices, decisions, the way that you're living. You change your mind about it and say, I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to live God's way under his lordship, under his leadership. And then you have to believe. What do I have to believe, pastor? A whole bunch of different things. I don't have time for a class. You don't have to go through a class. You have to believe basically three things. You have to believe you need to be saved, that you are a sinner, that you've sinned against the Lord, that you just like the rest of us have fallen short of Jesus's standard that he set for us have to believe that no matter how hard you try, you are incapable of permanently changing yourself into the kind of woman or man who lives the better life you know you should be living, but you aren't. You have to believe that. Now, if you only believe that, this is, you're going to be hopeless. But you also have to believe that Jesus has the ability to save you. If this man can predict his own death and his own resurrection and pull it off, you can trust anything that he says. If he has the power to defeat sin and death, then he has the power to save you and change you. He can. And then here's the third. You have to believe that he will. That you are not going to be the one exception to the rule. That you're not the one person who's going to ask Jesus to save you. He's going to be like, "Mm, not you. Absolutely, he will save you. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and he's just. He'll forgive your sins. He'll cleanse you from unrighteousness. You are not the exception to the rule. He wants to save you. He is aggressive with his grace. He will gift you the faith to believe. He even receives our fragmentary, imperfect confessions. He sees your heart. He sees your heart. Are you ready to repent? Do you believe? Yeah, pastor, now what do I do? Just tell him. Right now, right now, tell him. Use your words. Talk to him. Tell him, tell him of your repentant heart. Ask him to save you. 
Don't harden your heart. Soften your heart. Let the Holy Spirit soften your heart today. You have heard the truth. And if you walk away from this, your heart's going to be harder than when you walked in. And I don't, I'm just warning you, don't go down that road. I don't know how much time you have. I'd like to assume you've got 30, 40, 50 more, 60 more years in front of you. You might not have another 30 minutes. I don't know. I don't know. In this moment, will you hear his voice? Will you repent? Will you confess your belief? Pastor, I need you to be more specific. Okay, pray this. Forgive me, Jesus. I'm sorry for my sins. Save me. Change me. I believe. I believe. Make me into the person you know I can be. If you pray those words and you mean them, God's hearing them and you're saved. And right what you're experiencing right now is all of the joy and the pleasure of heaven filling you and resting on you. He's washed your sins away. He's forgiven you. He's not going to bring those things up to you again. He's not going to hold those things over your head as leverage. He's releasing all. He's releasing so much love to you right now, you probably can't even stand it. He's just not going to stop. He loves you and loves you and loves you and loves you. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning and you believed it, then God heard it. You're saved. You don't have to do another thing. Don't have to do another thing. You are saved. You're saved. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.